The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study. We're looking at the Upper Room Discourse right now. This is a record of our Lord's final instructions to His disciples just hours before His death. The second half of this Gospel, chapters 13-21, through 21, are often called by scholars the Book of Glory. And Do you remember what I said about who this Book of Glory is written to? It's written to believers. All right? Unlike the book of signs, the purpose of the signs were that people would believe. Alright, this is the book of glory. He has now taken His disciples, those who believed in Him, they're in the upper room, and He's teaching them. He's giving Him His farewell discourse before He leaves. He's teaching believers, those who have trusted Him, those who are His children. This is a family discussion. Hang on to that for a second, okay? We're going to look at some stuff that I need you to keep that in mind. Alright? We ended our study last time with verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, according to this verse, who is it that loves the Lord? He who loves him is the one who has the commandments and keeps it. Now, I think we could qualify as having the commandments, right? We have the Word of God. We know what the Lord said. They're recorded in our Bible. But we have to spend time in it in order to know what they are. You know, sometimes we just go on what other people have said about the Bible. We need to spend time in it so we know, so therefore we can obey. He says, He who loves me will be loved of my Father. I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now, in the immediate context of verses 18 through 20, this is a promise that Yeshua would disclose himself to his disciples after his resurrection. It was encouragement for them to continue obeying him, to continue loving him. Now, is there application here for us? I think there is. All right? And last week I said, if I could make application, it would be this. Some believers love Yeshua more than other believers do. You think that's true? This results in some believers obeying Him more than other believers do. You think that's true? You you know some Christians that seem to obey the Lord more than others? That results in some Christians enjoying a more intimate relationship with Him. See, I think the greater we the more we spend time in the Word and the more we walk in obedience doing what He's called us to do, we have a a more intimate relationship. Now, do you know some believers that seem to just really be connected to the Lord, seem to have this intimate relationship, and others who are just like, oh, they say they know Him, but it's kind of a casual thing. So I think in in that sense we could apply this. Now, D.A. Carson writes this, Jesus' words in 14.21 refer not only to the resurrection appearances, to the first disciples, but also to the corresponding self-disclosures of Jesus to His disciples in later times. I would agree with him there. I think, you know, when he says, if you love me, the Father and I, we're going to manifest ourselves. And I think, you know, 
even from personal experience, I know at times when you're really focusing on the Lord in the Word, seeking to walk with Him, there is, a, there is an intimate relationship there. I think you understand Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's a, it, a Christian is a person who has entered into a relationship with Christ through faith in the finished work on the cross. And just like in any relationship, the more you put in it, the more you get out of it. You know that's true, right? I fell in love with Kathy shortly after I met her. 45 years ago. Alright? Now my love for her is much deeper now. It's much stronger now. But even now, after 45 years, our relationship is good or poor, depending on what we put into it. If we work at it, we put more into it, we pay more attention to each other, try to minister to each other's needs, it's good, or it can be bad if you don't put anything into it. And I think the same is true with our relationship with Christ. You know, some Christians just, they say they know Christ, and that's the end of it. They don't commune with Him in His Word. They don't pray. They don't try to walk with Him. And they wonder why... The relationship just seems so superficial. It is. I think we will grow to know Christ more intimately by obeying Him. By walking in what we know is is to be true. Well, in verse 22, he says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, this is Judas, not Iscariot. Okay? That's a big distinction. You want to make that distinction, okay? Judas Iscariot has already departed back in chapter 13, verse 30. After the supper, he took the sup, he left. Satan entered into him, he left, all right? Now, according to Luke, there are two apostles named Judas, all right? We see this in Luke chapter 6, verse 16. And Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. All right, so we got two of them. Now, the one who asked the question here is Judas, the son of James. This is probably the same man named Thaddeus in Mark's Gospel. Look what Mark says in Mark 3.16-19. He says, He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. So that's probably who he's talking about here. This is another apostle named Judas. They call him Thaddeus. You know, if you were an apostle and your name was Judas, you'd probably want to use a different name. Okay, Judas didn't have a good connotation. Alright, so this Judas is asking this question. Alright? And we've seen this over and over. The Lord's talking and an apostle will, one of the disciples will ask him a question. It just launches the, you know, the narrative further. We get more information. Now, what's interesting about this Gospel is Lazarus includes more information about the other disciples, other apostles, than the synoptics do. You know, the synoptics focus on Peter, James, and John. And that's kind of it. And here we learn more about some of the other people that were with the Lord. And so here's this question. He says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now he's confused. How can you do that? 
Why? What's confusing to him? Well, to him, when the Messiah was revealed, all the nations of the world would see it. I mean, he's going to be king. He's going to be savior. He is the son of man of Daniel. That's what they would be thinking. So how in the world are you going to do that? And they'll not see it. See, they didn't get the idea yet. Let's look at Daniel. In 13, it says, I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And then verse 14 talks about this kingdom. He says, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So how could Yeshua manifest himself to them and not to the world? I mean, wouldn't everyone see him? Wouldn't all people, nations, languages see him and worship him as Daniel says? How in the world would you not see His kingdom and not see His power? And and behind all this, they're also thinking, aren't you going to overthrow Rome? Aren't you going to set us free from this Roman bondage? How's that happen if it's just us? I mean, their heads are spinning. Because none of this is fitting into what they think it's supposed to be. In verse 23, Yeshua answered him. Kind of. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love Him. And we will come to Him and make our home with Him. Now, Yeshua's reply is again to connect love and obedience. In John chapter 14, verses 15-31, through 31, Yeshua makes these kind of statements about love and obedience over and over again. I mean, it's really hard to miss it, people, if you're paying attention. In verse 15, He said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me, does not keep my words. Verse 28, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. So for the third time here, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now, If here is a third-class conditional sentence which speaks of potential action. If. Maybe you will. Maybe it's kind of how we use if. Maybe so, maybe not. Alright? A first-class condition would be if and it would mean since. Alright? But he says, if you do love me, maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you do, it'll be manifest by you keeping my word. So if someone is not living in obedience to Christ's teaching, do they love Him? This is not complicated. People, Just do this. Shake your head. No. Okay, no. Listen, I don't care what people say. Love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Love to God is obedience to the revealed will of God. Now, you'll hear people all the time say, oh, I just love the Lord. Really? While you're living in open sin? How, how do you love? That's not what the Bible calls love. If you don't obey the Word of God, you don't love God no matter what you say. So you really shouldn't be singing, oh, how I love Jesus, unless you're living in obedience to His teaching. Now, we're not talking about perfect obedience because the Lord's the only one who has ever done that. All right, But that should be the direction of our life, to obey Him, to know the Word of God, and to follow it. 
Now, I'm aware, believe me, I'm very aware, when I'm talking about obedience, someone is bound to accuse me of being legalistic. I mean, you just mentioned obedience. It's almost like it's a bad word. (gasps) You're a legalist. What about grace? What we need to understand is that to think God's grace and our obedience are at odds with one another is to misunderstand grace. All right, They're not at odds. Not at all. Look at Titus 2.11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So, you see what Paul's saying here? He says grace actually instructs us, it trains us to live righteously, to live obediently. Now, like I said, please understand, we're not talking about perfect obedience here. We're talking about the direction of our life would be towards obedience. And I can prove this. Look at what Yeshua prayed in John 17. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Did you catch that last phrase? They have kept your word. Who is he talking about here? The disciples. The ones that were at the, in the upper room arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Those disciples. The ones who in just a few hours are going to desert Him and all run away. Peter's going to deny Him. Thomas is going to doubt the resurrection. And knowing all this, Yeshua says, they have kept your word. They weren't living in complete obedience to the Lord, but that was the overall direction of their life. They wanted to. And listen, we're on this side of Pentecost still. Okay, They don't have the Holy Spirit. Once they get the Spirit, things change because if you're going to live in obedience to the Lord, you really need the Spirit. You can't do that on your own. All right, So we don't have any excuses because we have the Spirit. If we would depend on Him, we could accomplish what He's calling us to do. So He says, if anyone loves Me, he will keep My Word. Now, I can't emphasize this enough. He is talking to believers. And He's telling these believers they need to keep His Word. And understand this, His commandments here is not made a condition of salvation. In other words, if you keep My commandments, you'll be a Christian. No, he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll love me. Now, a lot of people just make these one thing. If you love God, you're a Christian. If you don't, you're not a Christian. Well, hopefully we'll see maybe that's not quite the case. What he's saying here is obedience is a proof of love. Let me give you some erroneous statements that some commentators make here in this section. One writes this, Obedience is crucial. It's the evidence of true conversion. Well, the problem here, he's not talking about conversion in these verses at all. He's talking to people who are already converted. And obedience is not evidence of conversion. It's an evidence of love. Within this text, we have the simplest and clearest sign of a genuine believer. He loves Christ and shows this by his obedience. No, we're not talking about that in this text. He's talking to believers. Another one writes this. I could go on all day with this stuff. When the, when the whole import of your life is to love and obey Jesus Christ, then it's clear that you are one has been born again. Yeah, that's a strong one, isn't it? See, they have made obedience a condition of salvation. 
And then you have to ask the question, how much obedience? Is 50% good enough? No. 75? Well, no one makes it 100, so we got to have some idea. How much obedience gets us in? This is crazy, people. Obedience demonstrates that you love Him. Not that you know Him. There's nothing in these verses about conversion. According to Yeshua, these men He's talking to, they are redeemed. Look what He says in chapter 15, verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. By clean here, He means redeemed because remember what He said in chapter 13? For He knew who was to betray Him. That is why He said, not all of you are clean. He said that because Judas was still with them. So he says, those in the upper room with him were clean. They were his children. Now with that in mind, notice what else Yeshua says about those who are with him in that upper room. All right, Remember, people are trying to, trying to make this obedience thing a condition of salvation or sign of salvation. Notice what Yeshua says in John 14, 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoice because I'm going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. Now, do you understand what Yeshua is saying here in this verse? He says, if you love me, you would have rejoiced. Were they rejoicing? They weren't rejoicing. Were they loving? No. And here's what, you know, this is, this is where the Greek gets exciting at sometimes, okay? This is a second class conditional sentence which is contrary to fact. What Yeshua is saying here, if you love me, which you don't, you would have rejoiced, which you are not. Do you see what he's... He's talking to his disciples and he's telling them, you don't love me. So if love is a condition of salvation, then this, this whole thing's out of whack here. He just said they're clean, but now he's saying they're not, you know, we got to make distinctions here, people. Robertson's word pictures say this. If you love me is a second class condition with the imperfect active of agapao, referring to present time, implying that the disciples are not loving Yeshua as they should. Did they love Him? I don't know anybody that would say no, except <laughs> Yeshua saying, you're not loving me. You're not loving me. He said they didn't. He said that if they loved Him, they would be rejoicing about His departure to the Father. But they were not. Why? Because they didn't love Him. They loved themselves. And so they're having a hard time with this. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Now love here, agapao, agape, we're talking about God's kind of love. All right? And that's the word he uses here. Love is patient. Love is kind. That wipes out half our population. Kind. It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Alright, the, the New American Standard says love does not seek its own. In other words, not just after its own things. We could say it this way. Love is not selfish. This means the loving person is willing to forego their own comfort, 
their own preferences, their own schedule, their own desires for the benefit of the person loved. So they weren't loving Yeshua because they were more concerned with themselves than they were for Him. He says, I'm going to my Father. And they're like, oh, what about us? What's that do for us? How, how are you leaving us here alone? You started this, now you're leaving? They weren't rejoicing with Him at all. He says, if you love me though, you would have rejoiced. So obedience is a mark of love, not of salvation. Faith is a mark of salvation. It is those who are truly saved and only those who are saved that can love Yeshua. In our text, we see those who are saved are not loving their Lord. That's what He says. That's the language. You are not loving Me if you love Me and you don't. And when we don't live obedient lives, you and I, we're not loving Him either. I don't care how you feel. You can go to a worship service and be just on the emotional high. That's not love. You get your emotions cranked up. Doesn't mean you're in love, because love is obedience. Very practical here. Okay, so you see that he's talking to believers here, but he's telling these believers in this verse, you guys don't love me, all right? Because if you did, you'd be rejoicing with me. All right, let's go back to 23. My Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. Now, who is the we here in this text? Well, the we is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the only verse in the New Testament that says that the Father also indwells believers. So here we got all three members of the Trinity taking up residence in us. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. I see believers, you know, wrestling with this. Well, we got the Spirit. Where's the Father? And is it okay to pray to this? And you know, the, the Trinity is one. People. Now, the word home here is the Greek word "mone." It's the same word we saw used in verse two, translated "rooms." In my Father's house are many rooms. Same thing here. He's going to come and make our room, our home, with Him. So, verse twenty-three shows us that "mone" has the idea of dwelling. We'll make our dwelling with Him. So he begins teaching in chapter 14 by referring to these rooms, and he uses a plural in 14.2 that would prepare for the disciples in heaven. And now he reveals that he and the Father would first make their home singular in believing disciples on earth. We're going to come. We're going to dwell with you. Again, I think this is just a picture of an intimate relationship here. These are the only two occurrences of the word Monet in the New Testament. And they bracket this section, indicating a unity here. Again, D.A. Carson writes, The theophany of which he has been speaking occurs within the circle of love that disciples itself in obedience to the Son's teaching. Yeah, yeah I, I thought that didn't sound right. <clears throat> I could read what, what's up there. It'd be yeah. The love displays itself in obedience to the Son's teaching. See, Yeshua stressed the principle that loving obedience always results in intimate fellowship. In a positional sense, people, God loves us ultimately. He could never love us anymore. In a practical sense, that relationship grows strong or weak depending on what we put into that. 
Really, this is the promise of the new covenant. The presence of God in each believer. That's what they promised in Ezekiel 37.26. He says, I will make a covenant of peace. We're going to talk about peace in a minute here with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. Guess what? That doesn't have an end. And I will set them in the land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. So it's an everlasting covenant. It's a covenant of peace. It's one that He's going to dwell with His people. So I see Yeshua as saying in our text that when we obey Him, He will share more of Himself, more of an intimate relationship with us. Again, this isn't mystical, extra-biblical knowledge. This is He's going to open up the Word of God to us. There's going to be communion. There's going to be fellowship. He says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You think he's stressing this in this text over and over? Here he restates the ethical point that he made in verse 15 and 23, but in the negative. Lack of love for Yeshua results in lack of obedience to his teaching. Which are, he says, the revelations of God the Father. God's taught him this. He's taught us. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Now the implication here, I'm not going to be here much longer. I'm speaking these things while I'm here. That These things refers to the teachings that are going on in the upper room. And the Greek construction of spoken here means I have spoken these things in the past with the results of them continues on. I've spoken these because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to teach you because I'm leaving. I'm not going to be around very much longer. And 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, all that I have said unto you. Helper here is the word parakletos. This is the same word we saw in verse 16. And we said that parakletos refers to a legal assistant in a court who pleads somebody's case before the judge. So here we see that the paraclete is specifically identified as the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in Yeshua's name. Now he's going to come at Pentecost, but he's telling him this is going to happen. He says, the Father will send Him in My name. So, we already know that the Son had come as the Father's emissary. And soon the Spirit is going to come as the Son's emissary. And He says, He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. This is one of those verses you've got to keep in context, people, okay? A lot of Christians pull this out and say, oh, God's going to teach us everything. You know, He's going to bring everything to our remembrance. That's not the context. He's talking to the disciples here, very specifically. You know, and this is one of the many verses, I think, that contain proof that the Holy Spirit is a person. He teaches. He's not a force, He's a person. Alright, this is primarily a promise that the Holy Spirit will enable the apostles and their associates to write the New Testament. Alright? I'm going to teach you. I'm going to bring all things to your remembrance. So you can put this down in writing. So the Holy Spirit taught these men direct revelation. This is something which was special and unique to this small band of believers who were commissioned by the Lord to carry the Gospel and to establish the work of God's Kingdom. They're going to put the Word together for us. The only Bible they had were copies of various parts of the Tanakh. These men had direct revelation by the Spirit. They were given the very words of God. Paul put it like this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, 
that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, Paul was teaching them, and you heard it, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers. So they accepted this. They realized God is working through these men. Paul gave them the Word of God which had been given to him by revelation of the Spirit. This means, people, that we can have a confidence that the New Testament has come to us from God. The Spirit inspired it. Peter said this, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This idea of being carried along here is like you take a stick and threw it in a river. It just carries it along. It's like the wind filling the sails of a ship and moving it forward. They're being moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, the personality of the authors can be seen in their writing. Because God used them as men to write this. But ultimately, this book is supremely correct in what it affirms. It's without error because God is carrying these men along in writing the Revelation. Now, I think there's three terms we need to understand in relation to the Spirit's work with the Scriptures. First of all, Revelation. This is God unveiling Himself to man. He's giving them insight into who He is. Secondly, inspiration. This is the infallible recording of what God has made known. So that he, he gave these men revelation. They wrote it down. He made sure that what He had given to them got correctly written down. And this is what our verse in John is talking about. Those first century disciples were given revelation. They were given inspiration. Now here's what I want you to understand. Both revelation and inspiration are closed. Okay? God's done writing the Word of God. You should say amen to that, okay? Because if it wasn't done, what would that mean? You got to go. Someone said, hey, someone said they got a word over here from the Lord, and you're like, okay, wait a minute, I got to add another appendix to this book. And then somebody over here said something, we got to stick something more in here. It's never done. People, it's closed and it's right here, and all you have to do is study it, okay? And learn what he has to say. We should be very thankful. But there's a lot of Christians who think, no, the Word is not closed. They're still getting prophecies. And we're still adding to the Word of God. No, it's not. And then we have illumination. Now, this is the Holy Spirit giving us an understanding of the inspired revelation. Illumination. Now, listen. This doesn't mean that we read a verse and say, Lord, just teach me what this says. Give me insight. And all of a sudden, the Lord gives, brings to your mind linguistics and culture and history, and all of a sudden, you magically know what this verse means. I don't think we can understand the Bible apart from the Holy Spirit. I mean, people, unsaved men study this book, and you can know what it says, you can know what the words mean, but it's Spirit-produced, okay? And the natural man, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness. They can understand the words, but they don't get it because it's spiritual. You need the Spirit first to understand what this book says. So I don't think we can understand the Bible apart from the Holy Spirit. But saying that, I think there are three keys to illumination. Alright? And they're this. The three keys are humility. David prayed, God, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of Your Word. And I think that when we approach the Bible, we approach it in prayer, humbly asking God to teach us from the Word. 
not helping us to find our pet doctrines in the Bible to back them up, but to find out what does the Word say and how do we respond to that. Humility. We've got to come to the Word of God with humility. Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility. The second would be holiness. By this I mean practical holiness. We are holy before God if you're a believer. But I'm talking about practical holiness. See, if you live in sin, and you're studying the Word of God, and you're going, teach me your Word. Well, you already have it, and you're not living up to what you already have. Alright? We're not helping you out here when you're not even following what you already know. I think this goes along with our text, the idea of God manifesting Himself to us as we walk in obedience. So if you want to understand the Word of God, you want to be illuminated. Humility, holiness, anybody know what the third one is? You're not going to like it. Hard work. Hard work. You say, what hard work? Well, if the Spirit, can't Spirit just, boom, teach us stuff? Well, He could, okay? But hard work is involved. Look at uh, Proverbs 2. I love these verses, these five verses here. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. Are his, is His word a treasure to you? Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, this idea, I want to know, I want to understand. Lift your voice for understanding. You're going to God, teach me your word. If you seek her as silver, man, men do go to great lengths for riches, for silver and gold. You search for her as for hidden treasure. If I were to tell you why you people are here at church today, I've had someone go to your house, one of your houses, and hide a million dollars in your house. When you at home, you're not going to go to lunch when you leave here. You wouldn't go to lunch. You wouldn't go visit. You'd get home as fast as you could, and you'd tear that house apart until you found that money. That's how, you know, for money we want to, we want, you know, put ourselves into it. He goes, well, listen, when you seek for the Word of God as silver, and you search for it as hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of Yahweh and discover the knowledge of God. People, we live in a different culture than the writers of Scripture. We speak a different language. We are historically separated by thousands of years. So we've got to put in some work to understand. And you know, the problem is, people, we read the words and we say, I know exactly what that means. Because you're, you're taking those words and you're saying, I know what those words mean today, and I know what they mean here. Well, that's, they weren't in our culture. We have to know what did it mean to them. You know, we live in an instant society, don't we? If it takes long, nobody wants it, okay? Instant society, we want it now. But understanding of God's work takes time and effort. It's not for lazy people. It's a process. A long process of learning and growing. N.T. Wright said this, One of the marks of human maturity is delayed gratification. I think that makes sense. Delayed gratification. We're willing to wait a little bit. That's not our society. We've got to have it now. All right? We're a microwave culture, you know? It's got to be instant. Most people in our culture today are looking for a biblical band-aid. 
You know, if they're having problems in their marriage, they want a message on marriage to fix their problem. Just preach a message about marriage that will fix my problem. (laughs) Or it's always about, what will this message do for me practically speaking? You know, I need some practical stuff. Let me tell you something, people. There is nothing in the world more practical than theology proper. The understanding of God. Because if you know who God is, life is good. And when you're confused on God, you can have all the messages on marriage and finances and health and all these other things you want, and you're going to be confused because what we need to know is God. And when you understand who He is, you rest. He's the sovereign King of the universe. So I would ask you to really put some time into this book. Shut off the TV. Stop with the video games. Do Put some time into the Word of God. If you want a relationship with God, you work on that relationship. You spend, how can you have a relationship with someone you spend no time with? You know that doesn't work in the physical realm. Don't call me. Don't text me. Don't come by. We'll be great friends. Now, you can be friends with someone you don't talk to that often. You can get together with them and all of a sudden you pick up. But if you have the opportunity to be with them and you keep turning it down, they're like, well, what kind of friend are you? If we want a relationship with Christ, we spend time with Him. Now, I know we don't have time, right? We're just too busy. If you're too busy to spend time with God, you need to really question your priorities. Okay? So put some effort in. Get in the Word of God. Call out to God in humility. Walk in holiness. Live up to what you're seeing the Word taught. And then put some hard work in there. Understand that culture. Do some background. He's going to teach them all things. He's going to bring all things to remembrance. Now, Yeshua knows that there's much of His teaching that they didn't understand. Remember, all through this gospel, He's teaching them something. They're like, what does He mean? What's He saying? What's going on here? After His death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father, the gift of the Spirit's going to come to the believers, and He's going to teach them. And all of a sudden, they're going to have an aha moment and say, that's what He meant. See, the Father's truth is passed on to the Son. The Son says, I only teach what the Father gives me. And then to the Spirit. And then the Spirit's going to inspire the apostles to record the Scripture. And then it's going to come on us through the Scriptures. And then the Spirit of God, the resident in us, becomes the interpreter and the illuminator of the Word of God. Verse 14, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. They're still fearful, because all they're focused on is them. Peace here is from the Greek word irene, which is from the Hebrew shalom. This is a customary greeting in this culture. All right? Someone comes up, you say, Shalom. You're leaving, you say, Shalom. Which is confusing to me. I can't tell if you're coming or going, you know? But they use the same word for both. And here it's used as a farewell. He's saying, Shalom, because he is leaving them. Again, this reflects the shortness of time. Now, peace is used twice here, and I think there's two different meanings in these pieces. First, he says, Peace I leave with you. There's the peace that we receive when we are justified by God. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 5.1. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through the Lord Yeshua the Christ. The we here in this verse is Paul and the Roman Christians. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the family of God. And he says, we've been justified. This is past tense. Alright? It's the aorist. It points to the past. God has, since He's accomplished this, He's justified. Since that's happened, we have peace. What does this peace mean with God? It means God's not angry with us any longer. It means the war is over. It means there's no more judgment, no more death. Peace with God is the new status between God and the believer that flows from the reconciliation accomplished in Christ. By virtue of Christ's death on the cross, we who are enemies have been made family. That's peace. That's peace. There was no peace before that reconciliation. And I think that's what he means when he says, my peace I leave with you. Peace is one of the fundamental characteristics of the Messianic kingdom. And that's what's coming into play here. And he says, I'm, I'm going to go prepare a place for you and I'm making peace through the cross. You can have peace with God. So, that's linked with expiation. And then Yeshua says, my peace I give you. I think this is linked with Christian experience. First, you are reconciled with God. One piece is with God, the other piece is the peace of God, which Paul talks about in Philippians 4. He says, don't be anxious about anything. He's talking to the Philippian believers, the church, but in everything, instead of being anxious, instead of being worried, every situation, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, when you're troubled, when you're anxious, go to God. Go to your Father. And he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Yeshua the Christ. Listen, when you really know God, you trust Him. And you'll have peace. But that's the problem. There's a lack of understanding in the church today about theology proper. Who is God? Look at Isaiah 26.3. You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. See, believer, no matter what problem you're facing, if you understand that God is the sovereign God of the universe, you can rest in peace. He's in control. You can be like Daniel. You can, they can throw you in the lion's den and you can grab a lion and lay down, make it a pillow and lay down and have a great night's sleep. That's not good circumstances to be thrown in a lion's den. But Daniel had peace because he knew God. All right? Now notice what this peace does. He says it will guard your heart and minds. The word guard here is the word phoreo, and it means to mount, guard as a sentinel, to hem in, to protect. God's peace guards our minds. It guards our hearts. It keeps us from worry and doubt and anxiety and fear because we trust Him. So peace in our text is used both as an objective sense it's restoration with God in a subjective sense, a feeling of security or stability in the midst of difficult circumstances. And notice what he says here. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is a present passive imperative with the negative participle, which means to stop an action that's already happening. The peace that Christ gives is the reason they need to stop being troubled. This is a repeat of the command he gave in verse 1. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. So again, he's bracketing this whole section with his presence, with you don't need to be troubled, 
Don't be afraid. The word afraid here, diliao, and it means cowardly fear. It's only used here, but the same root is used as an adjective by Matthew of how the disciples felt when they were in the boat in the midst of the storm. They were terrified. And he says, don't. Don't let your hearts be terrified. Just like in that boat, you didn't need to be scared because I just got up and said, peace, and the thing went calm. I'm still there. And I'll calm the storms of your life. You just have to trust me. He says, not as the world gives I unto you. The peace of the world is based on good circumstances. If you've got good circumstances, ah, I'm at peace. Everything's cool. Everything's going my way. But when you have Christ's peace, you can have peace in the midst of the worst circumstances. As Daniel did, as the three Hebrew children did as they're thrown into the furnace of fire. Verse 28 says, You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So Yeshua is still dealing with what's troubling the disciples, what's causing their fear, which is He repeatedly announced His departure. Every time He says, I'm leaving, they're like, oh no, you can't do that. Well, I'm going to my Father. I'm going back to the glory I had with my Father. No, no, we don't want that. We want you here with us. We need you. He said, you heard me say I'm going away. (laughs) Yes, they did, because He kept saying it over and over. In chapter 7, He says, I'm going to Him who sent me. 8.21, I am going away. And every time He says this, they cringe. 13.33, yet a little while I'm with you. At 14, he says, I'm going to the Father. So yes, they heard him say that. Over and over they heard him say that. And he even detailed that his going away involves death, resurrection, and ascension. They understand death, but they don't get the resurrection and ascension yet. They just don't get it. Then he says, if you love me, you would have rejoiced. Again, second class condition. If you love me, which you don't. Their fear was a result of a failure to love him as they should. Because they just caused them to focus on themselves. They should have rejoiced that even though his departure meant loss for them, it meant glory for him. See, what Yeshua assumes here is that love means seeking the other's best good. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. They're not rejoicing. It was good for him to return to the Father. Thus, if the disciples loved Him, that would have been their desire for Him, and they would rejoice that this was at hand. Yeah, it's going to be hard for them. They're not really sure how they're going to make it. They don't, but listen, they just have to trust Him. He's going back to His Father. You rejoice with Him. You know, I think too often we say that we love someone, but what we mean, we like what they do for us. That's love. We like what you do for us. If we love them, We'll want what is best for them, whether it's pleasant or painful for us. That's what love is. I'm seeking your best. What's best for you? You're going to be with your Father? That's awesome. We should rejoice in that. The bottom line here is all they can think about is what Yeshua leaving means to them. How's that going to affect me? What will we do? How will we get by? How will we carry on this message? See, their faith is weak and they are selfish. 
They're just a bunch of selfish teenagers. All right? Their sorrow is really completely self-centered. And that's why Yeshua says to them, if you love me, which you don't, you'd be rejoicing right now, guys. You're not demonstrating love at all. You're too busy worried about yourself. He says in verse 29, And now I have told you before it takes place, so when it does take place, you will believe. Again, he's talking to believers who when they see these things happen that he's talking about, the resurrection, the ascension, the coming of the Spirit, their level of trust in Yeshua is going to increase. See, after Christ's resurrection, when they reflected upon these predictions, they realized, wow, He's in complete control the whole time. There were plenty of things Yeshua said to them that they just didn't get. For example, if you can remember all the way back to chapter 2, He talks about His body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, you can destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it up. And they said, when therefore He was raised from the dead, so after the resurrection, His disciples remembered that He said this. Oh yeah, remember what He said about His body being the temple? And they believed the Scripture and the Word that Yeshua spoken to them. See, they had trouble understanding Him until after the resurrection. What was it that jogged their memories? It was the coming of the Spirit. To bring to their remembrance all things. Everything He had taught them. It was Pentecost. It was the Spirit's coming to enlighten them. In verse 30, He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the rule of this world is coming. He has no claim on Me. Now, the reason Yeshua gives that He doesn't have much more to say is because the ruler of the world is coming. Now, the ruler of the world here is Satan. This is Lazarus' second of three references to Satan using the same title. He used it in John 12.31. He used it here, and He used it in 16.11. Now, the soldiers and Judas are coming to arrest Yeshua, but they represent the evil one. And it's possible in light of the statement in 1327 that Satan entered Judas, that for Lazarus, the coming of Judas indicates the coming of Satan himself. All right, this is Satan's coming. I think he's referring to Judas. Satan is coming. He's, he's entered into Judas and he's coming to kill me. You know, Satan tried to kill Yeshua when he was a baby through Herod's decree, you know, all two year old males are going to be executed. Satan tried to tempt him in the beginning of his ministry to cause him to fall. He continuously confronted Yeshua. Everywhere he went, he was confronted with demons. But Yeshua says in our text, he has no claim on me. This is a Hebrew idiom frequently used in legal context that means Satan has no claim on me. Why did Satan have no claim on Yeshua? But what could he accuse Yeshua of? Nothing. He was sinless. He couldn't go to the Father and accuse Him. He couldn't go and say, you see what your son's doing? No. He's perfect. He is sinless. A blameless life. The devil's got nothing to lay claim upon Him. See, the death of Christ was not the death of a sinner deserving death. It was a perf- one of a perfect sacrifice willingly offered without spot or blemish on behalf of others who had sinned. Because He was sinless, He could pay our sin debt. If he wasn't sinless, he'd have to pay his own. Verse 31 says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that, they, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. You know that this is the only place in the New Testament where the Lord explicitly says, I love the Father. 
As the love of Yeshua's disciples for their masters demonstrated by obedience, we've seen that over and over, well, so also does the Son Himself remain in the Father's love by keeping His commandments. I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So the world will know that I love the Father. Because obedience demonstrates love. Yeshua's love for and obedience toward His Father are supremely displayed in His willingness to sacrifice His own life. Everything that happened in the Incarnation, including Satan's apparent victory, has all been planned and all been commanded by the Father. The Son who loves the Father does exactly what the Father commanded. Christ's death may look like a defeat, but in its final fact, it is evidence of the Son doing the work of the Father. See, Christ's death is a culmination of the Father's saving work in and through His Son, planned and purposed before the beginning of time. I'm doing exactly what God has planned. And Satan thought it was a victory and it ended up being a defeat. And Paul says, if the rulers of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know. They thought, it was, they, thought they were getting rid of him. So Christ is saying here, I am demonstrating to the entire world that I love the Father. How am I demonstrating that? By doing exactly what the Father commanded me to do. That's love, people. It was the Father's will for Yeshua to die. And that's what He was doing. And then He says at the end, rise, let us go from here. Boy, this is complicated. What do you mean, rise, let us go? I mean, we got a couple more chapters yet. we got 15, 16, and 17 that are all part of the upper room discourse. Where are they going? Well, this could mean that Yeshua left the upper room and was teaching them on the way to Gethsemane. But I don't like that, because I think 18 contradicts that. In light of 18, it seems like this is only an anticipated change. Look what 18 says. When Yeshua had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. So that makes it sound like they don't leave till 18. So it could mean that Yeshua simply stood up at this point, to finish the discourse before departing. And you know, if we look at this in, in practically in our own lives, have you ever had guests or relatives at the house? You know, and you're like, oh, it's time to go to bed. It's, want, want, you know, people need to leave. And finally your guests get up. And, okay, all right, we're going to get going. And then a half hour later, they're still there. They're still talking. You know, they're moving towards the door. You know, that could be exactly what's going on here. All right, rise, let's go. So they, you know, he stands up from the table. Maybe the others stand up. But he continues to teach. And I think they stay in that upper room until they left. I think in 18, after the prayer, he's going to pray for them. And after that, they leave. Either way, people, the time of the departure from the upper room is really not critical to a correct interpretation of the teaching here. All right? The teaching's the same. Location doesn't really affect it. But it's just interesting that he, that's thrown in here. Rise, let us go from here. And then in 18, seems to be another departure. So, all right. What we need to see in these verses is that a believer's love for Yeshua is demonstrated through their obedience to His teaching. So if you don't obey Him, you're not loving Him. I mean, there's a lot of teaching in here. You know, the Lord tells us we're going to forgive our brothers. So if you're holding a grudge against someone, you don't love the Lord. 
You say, well, I do love them, I just I don't like that person. No, you're not forgiving. If you're living in immorality and you say, well, I love the Lord. No, you don't. Not according to Scripture. You might have a good feeling about God. It makes me tingle when I think about Him or I just like this feeling. That's not what the Bible talks about. Love to God is demonstrated through your obedience. So I want to ask you as we close this morning, can you sing, Oh, how I love Jesus? No, we're not going to sing that in closing. <laughs> yeah, we might not. It might be really quiet. All right. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, I pray you'd allow us to grasp what you're saying in this section here about love and obedience. And we'd understand that you have called us to represent you here on earth, to be image bearers to bear your image to a lost and dying world. In order to do that, we need to be obedient. Lord, teach us. Open our eyes. Show us where we're failing, Lord. Give us a hunger for your word that we would truly seek it as for silver, Lord. We dig for it as for buried treasure. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen.